the eclipse. Next is a signature black to show the poles of my versatility, if you like. It was the darkest moment before the dawn. This time I had come for a man of perhaps twenty-four years or age. It was a beautiful thing in some ways. The plane was still coughing. Smoke was leaking from both its lungs. When it crashed, three deep gashes were made in the earth. Its wings were now sawn off arms. No more flapping. Not this metallic little bird. Some other small facts. Sometimes I arrive too early. I rush and some people cling longer to life than expected. After a small collection of minutes, the smoke exhausted itself. There was nothing left to give. A boy arrived first with cluttered breath and what appeared to be a toolbox. With great trepidation, he approached the cockpit and watched the pilot gorging if he was alive. At which point he still was. The book thief arrived perhaps 30 seconds later. Years had passed but I recognized her. She was panting. From the toolbox the boy took out of all things a teddy bear. He reached in through the torn windshield and placed it on the pilot's chest. The smiling bear sat huddled among the crowded wreckage of the man and the blood. A few minutes later, I took my chance. The time was right. I walked in, loosened his saw, and carried it gently away. All that was left was the body, the dwindling smell of smoke, and the smiling teddy bear. As the crowd arrived in full, things, of course, had changed. The horizon was beginning to chalk all. What was left of the blackness above was nothing now but a scribble and the disappearing fast. The man, in comparison, was the color of bone. Skeleton-colored skin, a ruffled uniform. His eyes were cold and brown, like coffee stains. And the last scrawl from above formed what, to me, appeared an odd, yet familiar shape. A signature. The crowd did what's crowd, what crowds do. As I made my way through, each person stood and played with the quietness of it. It was a small concoction of disjointed hand movements, muffled sentences and mute self-conscious turns. When I glanced back at the plane, the pilot's open mouth appeared to be smiling. A final dirty joke another human punchline. He remained shrouded in his uniform as the graying light arm rustled the sky. As with many of the others, when I began my journey away, there seemed a quick shadow again, a final moment of eclipse, the recognition of another soul gone. You see, to me, for just a moment, Despite all of the colors that touch and grapple with what I see in this world, I will often catch an eclipse when a human dies. I have seen millions of them. I have seen more eclipses than I care to remember. The Flag
The last time I saw her was red. The sky was like soup, boiling and stirring. In some places it was burned. There were black crumbs and pepper streaked across the redness. Earlier, kids had been playing hopscotch there. On the street that looked like oil-stained pages. When I arrived, I could still hear the echoes, the feet tapping the road, the children voices laughing and smiles like salt, but decaying fast. Then, bombs. This time, everything was too late. The sirens, the cuckoo shrieks in the radio, all too late. Within minutes, Mounds of concrete and earth were stacked and piled. The streets were ruptured veins. Blood streamed till it was dried on the road and the bodies were stuck there like driftwood after flood. They were glued down, every last one of them. A packet of salts. Was it fate? Misfortune? Is that what glued them down like that? Of course not. Let's not be stupid. It's probably, it probably had more to do with the hurled bombs drawn down by humans hiding in the clouds. Yes, the sky was now a devastating home-cooked red. The small German town had been flung apart one more time. Snowflakes of ash fell so lovely You were tempted to stretch out your tongue to catch them, taste them. Only they would have scorched your lips. They would have cooked your mouth. Clearly, I see it. I was just about to leave when I found her kneeling there. A mountain range of rubble was written, designed, erected around her. She was clutching at a book. Apart from everything else, the book thief wanted desperately to go back to the basement. To write or to read through her story one last time. In hindsight, I see it so obviously on her face. She was dying for it, the safety of it, the home of it. But she could not move. Also, the basement didn't even exist anymore. It was part of the mangled landscape. Please, again, I ask you to believe me. I wanted to stop, to crouch down. I wanted to say, I'm sorry, child. But that is not allowed. I did not crouch down. I did not speak. Instead, I watched her a while. When she was able to move, I followed her. She dropped the book. She knelt. The book thief howled. Her book was stepped on several times as the cleanup began, and although orders were given only to clear the mess of concrete, the girl's most precious item was thrown abroad. Thrown abroad a garbage truck. At which point I was compelled. I climbed aboard and took it in my hand, not realizing that I would keep it and view it several thousand times over the years. I would watch the places where we intersect and marvel at what the girl saw and how she survived. That is the best I can do. 
watch it fall into line with everything else I spectated during that time. When I recollect her, I see a long list of colors. But it's the three in which I saw her in the flesh that resonate the most. Sometimes I manage to float far above those three moments. I hang suspended until a septic truth bleeds toward clarity. That's when I see them formulate. The colors. Red. White. Black. They fall on top of each other. The scribbled signature black. Onto the blinding global white. Onto the thick soupy red. Yes. Often I am reminded of her. And in one of my vast array of pockets I have kept her story to retell. It is one of the small legion I carry, each one extraordinary in its own right, each one an attempt, an immense leap of an attempt, to prove to me that you and your human existence are worth it. Here it is, one of a handful, the book thief. If you feel like it, come with me. I will tell you a story. I'll show you something. One, the Grave Diggers Handbook, featuring Himmel Street, the Art of Sawmachine, an Iron-Fisted Woman, a Kiss Attempt, Jesse Owens, Sandpaper, the Smell of Friendship, a Heavyweight Champion, and the Mother of All Watchers. Arrival on Himmel Street. That last time. That red sky. How does a book thief end up kneeling and howling and flanked by a man-made heap of ridiculous, greasy, cooked-up rubble? Years earlier, the start was snow. The time had come for one. A spectacularly tragic moment. A train was moving quickly. It was packed with humans. A six-year-old boy died in the third carriage. The book thief and her brother were travelling down towards Munich, where they would soon be given over to foster parents. We now know, of course, that the boy didn't make it. How it happened? There was an immense spurt of coughing, almost an inspired spurt, and soon after, nothing. When the coughing stopped, there was nothing but nothingness of life moving on with a shuffle or a near-silent twitch. A suddenness found its way onto his lips then, which were a corroded brown colour and peeling like old paint, in desperate need of redoing. Their mother was asleep. I entered the train. My feet stepped through the cluttered aisle and my plan was over his my palm was over his mouth in an instant. No one noticed. The train galloped on, except the girl. With one eye open, once still in a dream, the book thief, also known as Liesel Maminga, could see without question that her younger brother, Werner, was now sideways and dead. His blue eyes stared at the floor, seeing nothing. Prior to waking up, the book thief was dreaming about the Führer, Adolf Hitler. In the dream, she was attending a rally at which he spoke, 
looking at the skull-colored part in his hair and that perfect square of his mustache. She was listening, contentedly, to the torrent of words spilling from his mouth. His sentences glowed in the light. In a quieter moment, he actually crouched down and smiled at her. She returned the smile and said, Guten Tag, Frau Führer. Wie geht's dir heute? She hadn't learned to speak too well or even to read as she had rarely frequented school. The reason for that she would find out in due course. Just as the Führer was about to reply, she woke up. It was January 1939. She was nine years old, soon to be ten. Her brother was dead. One eye open, one still in a dream. It would be better for a complete dream, I think, but I really have no control over that. The second I jumped awake and she caught me out. No doubt about it. It was exactly when I knelt down and extracted his soul, holding it limply in my swollen arms. He warmed up soon after, but when I picked him up originally, the boy's spirit was soft and cold, like ice cream. He started melting in my arms, then warming up completely, healing. For Liesel Mimingo, there was the imprisoned stiffness of movement and the staggered onslaught of thoughts. Es mit nicht. This isn't happening. This isn't happening. And the shaking. Why do they always shake them? Yes, I know, I know. I assume it has something to do with instinct. To stem the flow of truth. Her heart at that point was slippery and hot and loud. So loud. So loud. Stupidly, I stayed. I watched. Next, her mother. She woke her up with the same distraught shake. If you can't imagine it, think clumsy silence. Think bits and pieces of floating despair and drowning in a train. Snow had been falling consistently and the service to Munich was forced to stop due to faulty track work. There was a woman wailing. A girl stood numbly next to her. In panic, the mother opened the door. She climbed down into the snow, holding the small body. What could the girl do but follow? As you had been informed, two guards also exited the train. They discussed and argued over what to do. The situation was unsavory to say the least. It was eventually decided that all three of them should be taken to the next township and left there to sort things out. This time, the train limped through the snowed-in country. It hobbled in and stopped. They stepped onto the platform, the body in her mother's arms. They stood. The boy was getting heavy. Liesel had no idea where she was. All was white and as they remained at the station, she could only stare at the faded lettering of the sign in front of her. For Liesel, the town was nameless. It was there that her brother, Werner, was buried two days later. Witnesses included a priest and two shivering gravediggers. An observation. A pair of train guards, a pair of gravediggers, when it came down to it, one of them called the shots, the other did what he was told. The question is, what if the other is a lot more than one? Mistakes, mistakes, it's all I seem capable of at times. For two days I went about my business. 
I travelled the globe as always, handling salts to the conveyor belt of eternity. I watched them trundle passively on. Several times I warned myself that I should keep a good distance from the burial of Liesel Memminger's brother, but I did not heed my advice. From miles away as I approached, I could already see the small group of humans standing frigidly among the wasteland of snow. The cemetery followed me like a friend, and soon I was with them. I bowed my head. Standing to Liesel's left, the grave diggers were rubbing their hands together and whining about the snow and the current digging conditions. So hard getting through all that ice, and so forth. One of them couldn't have been more than fourteen, an apprentice. When he walked away, after a dozen, few dozen paces, a black book fell innocuously from his coat pocket without his knowledge. A few minutes later, Liesel's mother started leaving with the priest. She was thanking him for his performance of the ceremony. The girl, however, stayed. Her knees entered the ground. Her moment had arrived. Still in disbelief, she started to dig. He couldn't be dead. He couldn't be dead. He couldn't. Within seconds, the snow was carved into her skin. Frozen blood was cracked through her hands. Somewhere in all the snow, she could see her broken heart in two pieces. Each half was glowing and beating under all that white. She realized her mother had come back for her only when she felt the boniness of a hand on her shoulder. She was being dragged away. A warm scream filled her throat. A small image perhaps, twenty meters away. When the dragging was done, the mother and the girl stood and breathed. There was something black and rectangular lodged in the snow. Only the girl saw it. She bent down and picked it up and held it firmly in her fingers. The book had silver writing on it. They held hands. A final socking farewell was let go of, and they turned and left the cemetery, looking back several times. As for me, I remained a few moments longer. I waved. No one waved back. Mother and daughter vacated the cemetery and made their way toward the next train to Munich. Both were skinny and pale. Both had sores on their lips. Liesel noticed it in the dirty, fogged-up window of the train when they boarded just before midday. In the written words of the book, book thief herself, the journey continued like everything had happened. When the train f- pulled into the Bahnhof in Munich, the passengers slid out as if from a torn package. They were people of every stature, but among them the poor were the most easily recognized. The impoverished always try to keep moving, as if relocate- relocating might help. They ignore the reality that a new version of the same old problem will be waiting at the end of the trip. The relative you cringe to kiss. I think her mother knew this quite well. She wasn't delivering her children to hire a clones of Munich, but a foster home had apparently been found. And if nothing else, the new family could at least feed the girl and the boy a little better and educate them properly. The boy. Liesel was sure her mother carried the memory of him, slung over her shoulder. She dropped him. She saw his feet and legs and body slap the platform. How could that woman walk?
How could she move? That's the sort of thing I'll never know or comprehend what humans are capable of. She picked him up and continued walking, the girl clinging now to her side. Authorities were met and questions of lateness and the boy raised their vulnerable heads. Liesel remained in the corner of the small dusty office as her mother sat with clenched thoughts on a very hard chair. There was the chaos of goodbye. It was a goodbye that was wet, with the girl's head buried into the woolly, worn shallows of her mother's cot. There had been some more dragging. Quite away beyond the outskirts of Munich, there was a town called Molching. Said best by the likes of you, a small king. That's where they were taking her, to a street by the name of Himmel. A translation, Himmel means heaven. Whoever named Himmel Street certainly had a healthy sense of irony. Not that it was living hell. It wasn't. But sure as hell wasn't heaven either. Regardless, Liesel's foster parents were waiting. The Hubermans. They had been expecting a girl and a boy and would, would be paid a small allowance for having them. Nobody wanted to be the one to tell Rosa Huberman that the boy didn't survive the trip. In fact, no one ever really wanted to tell her anything. As far as dispositions go, hers wasn't really enviable. Although she had a good record with foster kids in the past, apparently she had straightened a few out. For Liesel, it was a ride in a car. She had never been in one before. There was the constant rise and fall of her stomach and the futile hopes that they would lose lose their way or change their minds. Among it all, her thoughts couldn't help turning toward her mother, back at Banhof, waiting to leave again, shivering, bundled up in that useless cot. She would be eating her nails, waiting for the train. The platform would be long and uncomfortable, a slice of cold cement. Would she keep an eye out for the approximate burial site of her son on the return trip? Or would sleep be too heavy? The car moved on, with Liesel dreading the last lethal turn. The day was grey, the colour of Europe. Curtains of rain were drawn around the car. Nearly there, the foster care lady, Frau Heinrich, turned around and smiled. Your new home. Liesel made a clear circle on the dribbled glass and looked out. A photo of Himmel Street. The buildings appear to be glued together. Mostly small houses and apartment blocks that look nervous. There is a murky snow. There is murky snow spread out like carpet. There is concrete, empty half-stand trees and grey air. A man was also in the car. He remained with the girl while Fro Henrich disappeared inside. He never spoke. Liesel assumed he was there to make sure she wouldn't run away or to force her inside if she gave them, gave them any trouble. Later, however, when the trouble did start, he simply sat there and watched. Perhaps he was only the last resort, the final solution. After a few minutes, a very tall man came out, Hans Huberman. Liesel's foster father. On one side of him was the medium-height Frohenrich and on the other was the squat shape of Rosa Huberman 
who looked like a small wardrobe with a cot thrown over it. There was a distinct waddle to her walk. Almost cute, if it wasn't for her face, which was like a creased-up cardboard and annoyed, as if she was merely tolerating all of it. Her husband walked straight, with a cigarette smoldering between his fingertips. He rolled his own. The fact was this, Liesel would not get out of the car. Was seized lost mit dem Kind? Rosa Huberman inquired. She said it again. What's wrong with this child? She stuck her face inside the car and said, Na, come, come. The seat in front was flung forward. A corridor of cold, a corridor of cold light invited her out. She would not move. Outside, through the circle she had made, Liesel could see the tall man's fingers still holding the cigarette. Ash stumbled from its edge and lunged and lifted several times until it hit the ground. It took ma- nearly fifteen minutes to cox her from the car. It was the tall man who did it, quietly. There was the gate next, which she clung to. A gang of tears trudged from her, from her eyes as she held on and refused to go inside. People started to gather on the street and Rosa Huberman swore at them after which they reversed back whence they came. A translation of Rosa Huberman's announcement. What are you assholes looking at? Eventually, Liesel Meminger walked gingerly inside. Hans Huberman had her by one hand. Her small suitcase had her by the other. Buried beneath the folded layer of clothes in that suitcase was a small black book, which... For all we know, a 14-year-old gravedigger in a nameless town had probably spent the last few hours looking for. I promise you, I imagine him saying to his boss, I have no idea what happened to it. I have looked everywhere, everywhere. I am sure he would never have suspected the girl. And yet, there it was, a black book with silver words written against the ceiling of her clothes. The Gravedigger's Handbook, a 12-step guide to gravedigging success, published by the Bayonne Cemetery Association. The book thief had struck her, struck for the first time. The book thief had struck for the first time, the beginning of an illustrious career.